For four years, all that's been in the news is Trump. The next four years, I want to make sure all the news is the American people. I'm tired of talking about Trump. That's a good idea. I'll take it. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's one reason. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW, In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF, amongst other fine terrestrial affiliates. And we also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet. It's on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker. And all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com, and I know that sounds like a lot of affiliates, but it's barely any at all compared to, well, what I really don't want to spend much time uh, talking about today, but given much of the lazy, hagiographic coverage that I am seeing elsewhere, I'm afraid I have to speak to this at least a bit. As uh, AP reports this afternoon, Rush Limbaugh, the talk radio host and one of the most powerful voices on the American right, died on Wednesday at the age of 70. Limbaugh, a longtime, very proud smoker, said a year ago that he had lung cancer. His death was announced on his show by his wife, Catherine. She is the fourth wife of the man who pretended to espouse family values as a central tenet of the phony brand of so-called conservatism that he pushed like a drug dealer onto his gullible listeners decade after decade. He was, of course, wildly partisan, bombastically self-promoting and larger than life. As AP notes, Limbaugh galvanized listeners for more than 30 years with his talent for vituperation and sarcasm. And while that is true, I would add that he galvanized listeners for more than 30 years with mean-spiritedness, dangerous misinformation, and outright lies that poisoned a nation and has now brought it to its knees while using our public airwaves. Yes, the socialism afforded to the megacorporations that he made wealthier at the expense of the American people. Yes, he used those public airwaves to spread those dangerous and deadly lies to a generation or more of Americans 
it will undoubtedly take at least that long to cleanse the body politic of his toxic disinformation. As AP notes, he called himself an entertainer, but his rants during his three-hour, five-day-a-week radio show broadcast on nearly 600 U.S. stations, all of them, again, public airwaves gifted to him, Thanks to horrific decisions made by both the Reagan and Clinton administration administrations and unchallenged for decades by lawmakers whose constituents stood to lose the most from that governmental handout that Limbaugh enjoyed and which frankly became a national suicide pact uh, that uh, coverage shaped the national political conversation swaying ordinary Republicans in the direction of their party. As AP notes, I would add over a cliff along with the rest of us, along with them. Uh, Limbaugh was, in fact, a great broadcaster, one who unfortunately used that greatness for evil instead of good and human kindness. As our uh, friend and longtime media critic Eric Bollert uh, wrote when Limbaugh's cancer diagnosis was made public last year, urging media outlets to tell the truth about Limbaugh despite his self-inflicted illness. Eric wrote, the coverage needs to be upfront and honest about, about the damage Limbaugh's career has done to this country and to the democratic process, the vile degradation of our public discourse. It needs to be transparent about the endless litany of lies and heartless smears Limbaugh has gleefully trafficked in for decades as he stuffed his pockets with millions and wallowed in the misfortune of others. Uh, at the time, Bullard noted, the press was already glossing over the substance of Limbaugh's regrettable career. CNN described him as simply a, quote, conservative talk show radio host and a Republican icon. The New York Times had similarly provided a bare bones description of, quote, a conservative talk radio host who is, quote, popular among grassroots conservatives. He said we saw the same whitewash coverage of the hateful talker when Trump tarnished the Presidential Medal of Freedom by awarding one of them to Limbaugh back in May of last year. Disappeared by the press was the host's signature misogynistic and race-baiting rants. Before birtherism, he, birtherism, he writes, there was rush. Before Infowars and QAnon, there was rush, purposely polluting American minds for three decades. Memo to the media, he wrote, tell the truth about Limbaugh. Tell the truth about his history of racist tirades. And how he used to refer to then-presidential candidate Barack Obama as a African-American. And played the mocking song Barack the Magic Negro. Tell the truth about how he made fun of actor Michael J. Fox's Parkinson's disease after the actor had the temerity to endorse Democratic candidates. During the 2012 campaign cycle, Bullard notes, in just one of a lengthy and demonstrably true list of uh, really a litany of deplorable behavior from the now late public airwaves propaganda artist, Limbaugh set his bullying sights on a 13-year-old boy that year and even likened him to a Nazi stormtrooper. The boy's crime... His mother came forward with allegations of sexual misconduct 
against then-Republican presidential candidate Herman Cain. The boy had urged his mother to go public, so Limbaugh used the power of his AM radio show on hundreds of stations across the nation to wage war on a middle school student. Bullard ended, ended the column uh, uh, last year by saying, Rush Limbaugh is an awful, awful person. Tell the truth about him. Now, I'm not inclined to speak ill of the dead, but telling the truth, particularly as others dangerously fail to do so on a day like today, as millions of Americans are suffering as we speak, in no small part thanks to Rush Limbaugh's years of horrific lies, well, in that case, telling the truth is important even as I take little joy in any of it, to be frank. As a friend wrote to me via email today, I quote, I hope that a generation not influenced by right-wing media mendacity can somehow repair the damage Limbaugh and his ilk have inflicted upon democracy and the planet. I share that hope, but I'm afraid it's going to take a while. We don't spend a lot of time on this show talking about Limbaugh and his lies, largely because, well, we don't really need to. A generation of Republicans turned misinformed extremists do it for us through their actions and their words. Uh, one of those actions and, and those words, which I had previously planned before Limbaugh's death was announced, uh, to open today's show with, uh, is another American poisoned by Limbaugh's rhetoric and, and callously using it as a weapon to harm his fellow citizens even amidst a deadly crisis. No, not the COVID crisis. The crisis now being faced by millions across the great state of Texas. By Tuesday morning of this week, the residents of Colorado City, Texas, were getting anxious. More than 24 hours had passed since a deadly Arctic blast knocked out power across the state, leaving them without heat or electricity and below freezing temperatures. The Washington Post reports, to make matters worse, many also lacked running water, forcing them to haul in heavy buckets of snow each time they needed to flush their toilets. Residents turned to a community Facebook in uh, a, group, a Facebook group in Colorado City to ask whether the small town had planned to open warming shelters, while others wondered if firefighters could do their job without water. But when Colorado City's mayor, Tim Boyd, chimed in to the Facebook group, it was to deliver a less than comforting message. The local government, he said had no responsibility to help out its citizens, and only the tough would survive. No one owes you or your family anything, Boyd wrote on Tuesday in a now-deleted Facebook post. Nor is it the local government's responsibility to support you during trying times like this. Sink or swim, it's your choice, he wrote. The city and county, along with power providers or any other service, owes you nothing. He said with the word nothing in all caps, I am sick and tired of people looking for a damn handout. Sound familiar, Rush Limbaugh fans? 
If you don't have electricity, you step up and come up with a game plan to keep your family warm and safe, he wrote. If you have no water, you deal without and think outside the box to survive and supply water to your family. If you are sitting at home in the cold because you have no power and are sitting there waiting for someone to come rescue you because you you are lazy, that is the direct result of your raising, he said. The mayor of the town. Only the strong will survive and the weak will perish. He spelled weak, W-E-E-K, Desi Doyen. Of course he did. God, folks, he said, folks, God has given us the tools to support ourselves in times like this. This is sadly a product of socialist government where they feed people to believe that the few work and others will become dependent for handouts. I'll be damned if I'm going to provide for anyone that is capable of doing it themselves, he said. Bottom line, quit crying and looking for a handout. Get off your ass and take care of your own family. Colorado City, Texas Mayor Tim Boyd. His tirade immediately drew backlash. Later on Tuesday, Boyd announced his resignation and admitted that he he could have used, quote, better wording. I don't think wording was his problem. The controversy highlighted how one of the worst storms in decades is now testing the limits of the embrace of self-sufficiency and rugged individualism in Texas. The state's decision to skirt federal oversight by operating its own power grid is one of the main reasons that close to 3.3 million residents in Texas still lacked electricity by early Wednesday morning while outages in other hard-hit states had dwindled to less than one-tenth of that size. As of late Tuesday, grid operators in Texas still could not predict when the lights might turn on, and advocates were warning that Texas's poorest and most vulnerable residents were at risk of freezing to death. At least 10 deaths in Texas have now been linked to the winter storm since Monday, according to the Houston Chronicle. But that... Both former mayor of Colorado City's tirade uh, and the failure of the state government to be able to provide the basic services necessary for survival because of all those pesky federal regulations that might cost a handful of private companies more money. That is, to paraphrase Limbaugh, pure and simple Limbaughism. And, and all of it is emblematic of damn near every problem that we now face in this country, thanks in no small part to the now dead radio icon. More on the mess in Texas and Ari Berman of Mother Jones on the avalanche of new voting restrictions hastily being pushed through state legislatures across the country by, yes, Limbaugh Republicans. All of that is still ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the broadcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Against the wind, 
Yes, they are. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Millions in Texas were struggling to stay warm for yet another day on Wednesday. Many going for days now without power as continued winter weather, bitter cold, and the looming threat of more ice with a new storm now on its way meant that the blackouts might last until the end of the week in the Lone Star State. Desi Doyen, your family still doing okay down there? Yes, everybody is is okay. So far, so good, but it is very difficult. I cannot overstate how difficult yeah. it is. By midday on uh, Wednesday, more than 3 million customers in Texas did not have electricity. That means more than 3 million people, by the way, since... One house is presumably considered a customer, no matter how many are living in that house. Uh, that, as winter weather advisories, warnings, or watches stretched from Texas to Virginia. Courtney Heineman, a single mom in South Dallas, said, My house thermostat is at 39 degrees, 20 hours, no heat, no fireplace, no food. Our friend Eddie Perez, a former voting machine company official who has been on this show several times, he tweeted late last night from Austin with a photo of candles uh, saying, quote, three kids asleep on the family room floor, 41 hours without power. Following an ice storm, Austin Energy on Wednesday morning reported that customers should prepare to be without power for Wednesday and, quote, possibly longer. Isaac Warren of Southwest Austin said, uh, quote, we're now at approximately 36 hours straight without power. We need heat. Just a couple of hours of electricity to heat the house a little, he said, adding, really disappointed with our governmental leaders at all levels. This is a complete failure of leadership, he said. It should be noted here that the electrical grid in Texas was deregulated, privatized, and removed from the interconnected networks in 1999 in order to avoid federal regulation and, yes, to increase profits to a small number of wealthy individuals at the expense, clearly, of millions of, you know, actual residents of the Lone Star State. Rush Limbaugh would be proud. Uh, I guess by uh, limiting, unlike any other state, limiting the grid to just Texas. That way the lines don't go over, uh, the power lines don't go over state lines, and therefore they don't have to face federal regulation. Limbaugh would also be proud of the incredible propaganda wave that GOP opportunists have been able to mount over a very short period of time, just over the past 24 to 48 hours, in order to blame renewable energy somehow for Texas's failure and the failure of its privatized power industry. Yes, its fossil fuel industry. Right-wingers, including... Uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott blamed the power outages on a failure of green energy. Uh, and yet wind and solar generate only about 15 to 20 percent of the state's electrical power. The rest, the vast majority, which, yes, has failed, is fossil fueled, natural gas, some coal and some nuclear and none of the systems were winterized because the private, deregulated companies apparently wanted to save money. So, yeah, uh, you know, the water needed to cool nuclear power plants. That's frozen. Natural gas wells are shut down. Valves are frozen. Non-winterized pipelines, frozen. Frozen. 
Houston Police Chief Art Acevedo said on NBC today uh, that power outages would last, quote, two or three more days, two or three more days at least. He noted that the uh, that El Paso, Texas, has not experienced blackouts because they are part of a national power grid somehow that many other parts of Texas have opted out of. He said, we've deregulated here in Texas. We've gone it alone. And quite honestly, when people worry more about profits, they're not going to winterize their plants. We've cut corners, he said. We've tried to worry more about profit. And now Texans are suffering for it. Since last Thursday, winter weather has played a role in at least 30 deaths across the country, according to officials. Many of those deaths have been in Texas. And I know we talked about this uh, yesterday, but I'll tell you what, Des, the wingnuts have really been pouring on the propaganda over the past day or two. Oh, yeah. And it, it basically they latched on to that one little side note that one uh, media outlet had said, wow, wind turbines froze over. And then they just ran with that. And that has been nonstop what they've been talking about. I should say lying about yeah. on Fox News they, and other right wing media outlets. They are using this tragedy because, you know, what good is a disaster if you can't make good use of it uh, to distract uh, from the actual tragedy because it's a way to, you know, well, A, they can try and discredit renewable energy and they could avoid placing blame on themselves, on their own failures, on their dangerous deregulation and, yes, the failure of their own fossil fuel systems. Uh, so, yes, we, we've talked about this uh, a little bit, but he, don't take it from us. Desi and I, we talked about it yesterday. We tried to explain this to you, but uh, here's the uh, nonprofit, nonpartisan Texas Tribune today. Frozen wind turbines in Texas caused some Republican state politicians to declare that the state was relying too much on renewable energy. But in reality, they write, the lost wind power makes up only a fraction of the reduction in power generating capacity that has brought outages to millions of Texans during a major winter storm. An official with the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, or ERCOT, said on Tuesday afternoon that 16 gigawatts of renewable energy generation, mostly wind, was offline. But nearly double that, 30 gigawatts, had been lost from thermal sources, including gas, coal, and nuclear. Michael Weber, an energy resources professor at the University of Texas at Austin. That's your old alma mater, isn't it? Yes, it is. Okay. Uh, He said that while all of Texas's energy sources share blame for the power crisis, the natural gas industry is most notably producing significantly less power than normal. Weber said gas is failing in the most spectacular fashion right now. I haven't seen much of that on Fox News for some reason. Dan Woodfin, a senior director at ERCOT, echoed that statement. He said it appears that a lot of the generation that has gone offline has been primarily due to issues on the natural gas system. Still, state GOPers have focused their blame, for some reason, on wind power. Quote, This is what happens when you force the grid to rely in part on wind as a power source, said U.S. Congressman Dan Crenshaw of Houston, tweeting on Tuesday. Nonetheless, even Crenshaw had to go on to note that the shutdown of a nuclear reactor in Bay City because of the cold 
That was shut down, and he finally got to what energy experts say is actually the biggest culprit, low supply of natural gas. He said, we didn't run out of natural gas, but we ran out of the ability to get natural gas. Pipelines in Texas don't use cold insulation, so things were freezing. So, of course, blame the wind. Agriculture Commissioner Sid Miller, known for his right-wing Facebook uh, posts, apparently, uh, that have in the past spread misinformation and amplified conspiracy theories, according to Texas Tribune. He also post posted an unvarnished view of wind energy on Facebook. He said, quote, we should we should never build another wind turbine in Texas. <laughs> In another post, Miller was even more forthright, but also misleading, said, quote, insult added to injury. Those ugly wind turbines out there are among the main reasons we are experiencing electricity blackouts. Isn't that ironic? He said so much for the unsightly and unproductive energy robbing Obama monuments, <laughs> adding at least they show us where idiots live. Well, apparently they live in Texas. Yes, you were yep. saying? Yes, I was just going to agree. Yes. And you know what's <laughs> what's what's really just mind-boggling about these lies that are being told by these Republican representatives to their very own constituents who are suffering right now. They're yep. lying to them while they suffer. Yeah. Ironically, wind power was the only source that was still generating during the storm. The wind turbines that managed to not freeze were overperforming oh. and providing what little electricity was available. Really? You mean it wasn't the energy robbing Obama monuments? <laughs> See, I told you we don't need to talk about Rush Limbaugh to hear Rush Limbaughism now every single day. The Tribune continues, while wind power skeptics claim the week's freeze means wind power can't be relied upon, wind turbines like natural gas plants can be winterized or modified to operate during very low temperatures. Yes, they use a lot of wind up in Alaska, don't Turns they? Turns out they also have wind turbines that generate electricity in Antarctica. Experts say that many of Texas's power generators have not made those investments necessary to prevent disruptions to equipment. And because they are privatized and deregulated, neither the state nor the federal government requires them to do so. It's estimated that of the grid's total winter capacity, about 80 percent of it, or 67 gigawatts, could be generated by natural gas, coal and some nuclear. Only 7 percent. Of ERCOT's forecasted winter capacity, or 6 gigawatts, was expected to come from various wind power sources across the state. But yeah, blame the wind. Governor Greg Abbott specified that fossil fuels, this is even, even Abbott, specified that fossil fuel sources were contributing to the problems with the grid when describing the situation on Twitter on Monday. Quote, the ability of some companies that generate the power has been frozen. This includes the natural gas and coal generators. But by Tuesday night, Abbott was on Sean Hannity's show on Fox News blaming somehow the Green New Deal, which does not even exist yet. <laughs> Heather Zickel, the uh, CEO of the industry group uh, called the American Clean Power Association, said opponents of renewable energy were trying to distract from the failures elsewhere in the system and slow the, quote, transition to a clean energy future. Sounds about right.
She said it is, it is disgraceful to see the longtime antagonists of clean power who attack it, whether it is raining, snowing, or the sun is shining, engaging in a politically opportunistic charade, misleading Americans to promote an agenda that has nothing to do with restoring power to Texas communities. Right on, Heather. Hey, Texas, can you please vote these idiots out of office once and for all? Or should I say vote them out of power once and for all? Well, maybe yes, maybe no. That fight might be getting harder from here on out, as Mother Jones's Ari Berman will explain right after this. I'm sorry to say, I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to the Bradcast. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. All right, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. In 2015, our friend Ari Berman of Mother Jones recently wrote... White members of the Board of Elections in Hancock County, Georgia, majority black area outside of Atlanta, launched a plan to remove black voters from the registration rolls in advance of elections for mayor and city council in the county seat of Sparta, which just happens to be nearly 90 percent black. The board challenged the eligibility of nearly 20 percent of the city's residents, almost all of them black, and sent law enforcement officials to serve them a summons to appear at board hearings or be purged from the rolls. Voter participation that year fell by 40 percent in the election, and Sparta elected a white candidate for mayor for the first time in 32 years. It was an effort pretty clearly to disqualify African-American voters in Sparta, said a lawyer for the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights who had filed suit against the voter challenges. The county attorney at the time, GOP state rep Barry Fleming, denied that there was any voter suppression in Sparta. But in 2018, Hancock County agreed to a legal settlement with civil rights groups, restoring eligible voters to the rolls and agreeing to allow a third party examiner to oversee voter registration procedures. Hancock County became the first jurisdiction since the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013 to be placed back under federal supervision. While his efforts in Sparta may have hit a roadblock, Fleming, you will be delighted to learn, has now taken on a prominent position where his test run to roll back voting rights could be expanded to the entire state. In early January of this year, he was named chair of the new special committee on, wait for it, Election integrity created by the Speaker of the House of Georgia 
tasked with enacting new laws to make it harder to vote, particularly for Democratic-leaning constituencies. That after Georgia flipped blue and Donald Trump failed to overturn the results in the state. Before he accepted the assignment, Fleming, who's also chair of the state House Judiciary Committee, took aim at mail-in voting, which was popular among Republicans, Ari notes, for many years before black voters and Democrats used it at higher rates in 2020 in response to the coronavirus pandemic. Now, you may recall over the more than decade and a half or so that we have been pushing back against the Republican photo ID polling place restriction schemes meant to disenfranchise Democratic-leaning voters, that virtually all of those restrictions that were enacted targeted only voting at the polling place. Few ID restrictions were mandated, by and large, for mail-in voters because, well, among other reasons, mail-in voting was used far and away by more Republicans than Democrats historically in most places. Well, now that that has changed and more Democrats are voting with absentee ballots, Republicans have turned their sights on new ways to limit those voters as well. Ari notes that Georgia State Rep Fleming, now the chair of the new committee to make it more difficult to vote in Georgia, wrote in December after Trump lost the 2020 election in the Peach State, quote, Democrats are relying on the always suspect absentee balloting process to inch ahead in Georgia and other close states, adding this vaguely racist, actually, explicitly racist metaphor, quote, if elections were like coastal cities, absentee balloting would be the shady part of town near the docks you don't want to wander into because the chance of being shanghaied is significant. But as Georgia goes right now, so goes much of the rest of the nation for Republicans, particularly in so-called battleground states where they are now reeling from their loss in the 2020 presidential election and trying to figure out how to keep that from happening again. Not by reconsidering their unpopular policies abhorred by much of the American people, but by figuring out how to make it more difficult for certain people to participate in their democracy at all. As Berman notes, Republicans are now taking this, that strategy to the next level, trying to accomplish through legislation what Trump could not with litigation. NYU's Brennan Center for Justice noted in a recent report, quote, in a backlash to historic voter turnout in the 2020 election and grounded in a rash of baseless and racist allegations of voter fraud and election irregularities, Legislators have introduced well over four times the number of bills to restrict voting access as compared to roughly this time last year. Thirty three states have introduced pre-filed or carried over one hundred and sixty five restrictive bills this year that compared to thirty five such bills in 15 states in early February of 2020. All in all, Berman notes, these efforts amount to the most concerted attempts to roll back voting rights since the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. Welcome to 2021. Joining us now is Ari Berman, senior reporter at Mother Jones, author of the landmark book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America, cited by The New York Times as one of the best books of 2016. 
And sadly, that struggle continues. Ari Berman, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hey, Brad. Thanks for having me. Good to talk to you again. Last time we had you here, Ari, it was on the eve of Georgia's presidential primary last summer, as I recall. Uh, And as feared, the primary was a bit of a disaster for voters in certain parts of the state. The general election ran much smoother there, however, happily. Other than that, I presume it's been a fairly quiet few months on the democracy beat since then? Yeah, as you mentioned uh, in your in your introduction, evidently it went a little too smooth uh, for Georgia Republicans because now they are trying to take away uh, all of the opportunities that people had uh, to vote. And it's really fascinating. Uh, the Georgia Secretary of State, uh, Brad Raffensperger, who of mm-hmm. course has been in the news yep. uh, for standing up to Donald Trump and, and not trying to steal the election uh, for him, uh, put out a press release uh, before the election, and he basically said, Georgia is one of the easiest states to vote. We have automatic voter registration, we have early voting, and we have no excuse absentee voting. Well, what did Georgia Republicans do uh, after the election? They introduced bills to get rid of automatic voter registration and to get (laughs) rid of no excuse absentee voting. So of the three things that the Republican Secretary of State cited as to why Georgia elections ran smoothly, they're trying to get rid of two out of the three of them, and they've already talked at other points about getting rid of early voting. And this is pretty astonishing to me because Republicans in Georgia wrote the state's voting law. Mm-hmm. They were the ones that wrote no-excuse absentee voting. They are the ones that exempted voter ID from no-excuse absentee voting because they believe that Republicans were going to use it uh, more than Democrats. And for many, many years, um, that was true. Uh, the only thing that really changed in 2020 was that black voters and Democrats used mail voting at a higher rate than whites because they were more concerned about the pandemic and because Trump told Republicans not to vote by mail. Mm -hmm. Uh, But after the election, Raffensperger said over and over, there was no fraud in Georgia. The president doesn't know what he's talking about. Yet the Republican Party is now trying to weaponize Mm -hmm. those bogus fraud claims to lay the groundwork for getting rid of the system that they wrote, instituted, and took advantage of until it didn't benefit them anymore. And it should be noted, I'm glad you started with Raffensperger here, because we had covered him in, uh, well, several years in the lead-up to the 2020 election, and I know a lot of Democrats sort of see him as a hero because he stood up, because he refused to steal the election for Donald Trump. But in fact, aside from lauding those, uh, those new reforms to voting in the Peach State before the election, Raffensperger has now joined the crowd, if I'm not mistaken, in calling for an end to no-excuse absentee voting. Is that correct? He has. He, he, has, <laughs> he has said that he, he no longer supports no-excuse absentee voting because it's too burdensome um, for the state to be able to run early voting, mail voting, and uh, he said it's too burdensome for them to be able to run mail voting, mm-hmm. early voting, and person voting. Even though Many, many states have all three of those things, and it's not revolutionary to give people options to vote. In fact, that's why we had such high turnout in 2020 is because people had so many options to vote. Um, so, so it's kind of amazing here. The Republican Party in Georgia is sort of split right now. The lieutenant governor says he doesn't support getting rid of um, absentee voting. Brian Kemp, the governor, who, of course, has a long history of voter suppression, mm-hmm. did exactly his time as Secretary of State, is trying to be kind of coy. On the one hand, he's trying to be more moderate because he's going to run again against Stacey Abrams most likely in 2022, but I'm sure he also wants to try to rig the voting process to his advantage, mm-hmm. knowing that Stacey's going to run 
um, in 2022. Something really remarkable happened this morning. Um, the Georgia Senate Ethics Committee had two subcommittees. They met at 7 a.m. in the morning, which in and of itself is insane, mm-hmm. in, a, in a hearing that was not open to the public unless you were physically there at the time of COVID. So there was no live streams, even though virtually all of the Georgia legislature is now live streamed. And they passed four bills. Um, to make it harder to vote, including get a re- getting rid of no-excuse absentee voting, so that if you want to vote by mail in Georgia, you can only do so, according to this law, if you are over 75, if you're out of town, or if you have a doctor's note. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I just want to know yeah. that 1.3 million people voted by mail in Georgia in 2020. So this is not an insignificant change we're talking about. This is not, right. We're not talking about 10,000 votes, 20,000 votes, 100,000 votes flipping. We're talking about basically going from 1.3 million people voting by mail to I don't know how many would be eligible, but a much, much, much smaller number than voted by mail the last time. And I also think that, quite frankly, Republicans are playing with fire here, because even though Democrats used mail voting more in 2020, the GOP base is more rural and more and older. And uh-huh. granted, if you're over 75, you can vote by mail still under this law. But it's very possible that in 2022 or in 2024, a lot of Republicans are going to realize how convenient it is to vote by mail and want to do so again and might not be able to because of the law that Republicans mm-hmm. just passed. And if indeed it does pass. Yeah, if it, if it gets all the way through. And, I mean, we have seen actually in the last couple of years, particularly in Georgia, that a lot of these attempts uh, at voter suppression have arguably backfired against the Republicans because it really ticks a lot of people off. But just on a legal level, Ari, I'm I'm not a legal expert here, but isn't there a higher bar in court for rolling back rights that have already been granted? Won't the, won't the GOP have to demonstrate some legitimate reason that they are taking away these uh, these rights uh, previously granted? You'd think so. I mean, first off, you have all of the statements by Raffensperger and others that there was no fraud in the election. Mm-hmm. So there's no demonstrated problem. And then you're going to have all this data showing that black voters voted by mail in larger numbers than in years past. And in fact, that's why they're getting rid of it. So you're, people are going to ask the question, why didn't you try to get rid of mail voting in 2010 or 2012 or 2014 or 2016? Why suddenly now? Mm-hmm. And so then that's going to be a, a difficult case. I worry a lot about the composition of the judiciary yeah. when Donald Trump was able to name 234 judges to the mm. courts, yeah. uh, including three on the Supreme Court. So I worry a lot about how a 6-3 to three Supreme Court is going to interpret this, and that's why I'm not super optimistic when people say, you know, we'll fight these laws in the courts and we'll mm. win. Um, I don't I don't feel that way. I feel mm. like you need to beat these laws uh, legislatively or have a federal legislative response to them. Um, I think that's going to be ultimately more successful uh, than, than going through the courts. But yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be hard for them to justify why they've done this. Basically, the, their only justification for it now seems to be that, well, there's a perception out there that the election was rigged or stolen. And that perception, of course, exists because of what the Republican Party did, mm-hmm. uh, not not necessarily Raffensperger, but so many Georgia Republicans were complicit in Donald Trump's yeah. big lie. And basically they're saying, well, because people believe things are untrue, yeah. we have to act to change a system that, by our own accounting, 
worked very well. Yeah, but you know, Ari, I'm sure you remember this well. That that's a tactic that actually works. That's how they were able to push through a lot of this uh, photo ID nonsense early on. They said, "Well, yeah, we can't actually show any, uh, you know, instances of of people double voting at the polling place. However, people fear that that might happen, and therefore that is justification enough. And it was actually accepted by uh, the courts on that premise, even though it was the Republicans themselves who had stirred up those false concerns. And I want to get to the uh, to the federal response shortly, but let, let's fly through a, a few other states here because we're seeing something very similar. For example. In in Pennsylvania, Georgia is not the only place where we've seen this sort of whiplash inducing policy flip flop from the GOP. Tell us about what happened in what is happening now, I guess, in Pennsylvania, where Republicans late in 2019, right before the presidential election year, they were rather proud of their bipartisan election reform measure that for the first time. You know, unlike Georgia, which has had it for a while, Pennsylvania, for the first time, they allowed no excuse absentee voting in the Keystone State, and everybody was delighted about it. Yeah, they're trying to get rid of no excuse absentee voting in Pennsylvania, which all but two Republicans in the legislature voted for. Uh, it has no chance of becoming law right now because it's a Democratic governor in Pennsylvania, um, but the Democratic governor, Tom Wolf, is term limited. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be a gubernatorial elections in 2022. So if a Republican becomes governor, and uh, they could try to pass this before 2024 for sure. So they're already laying the groundwork for that. They also are doing another thing that's really insane, mm-hmm. which is they are trying to gerrymander the judiciary, so that Pennsylvania is one of those states that has judicial elections, and people are elected statewide, and uh, Democrats have a five-to-two progressive majority on the state Supreme Court. That is the same state Supreme Court that struck down Republican gerrymandering attempts and refused to uphold attempts by Republicans to gut mail voting in the run-up to the election, and then, of course, steal the election uh, afterwards. And the fact that they lost all these cases, they're basically saying... Uh, we are now going to gerrymander the courts that struck down gerrymandering. Yes. And they can't do this unilaterally. This has to, they, this, they basically they're going to put a constitutional amendment on the ballot. Uh-huh. They were trying to do it in May, which would have been very quick. doesn't look like they're going to make that deadline. So Good. they're going to do it maybe in November, which will give people more time to oppose this. Uh, this is such a clear, blatant power grab. It's a little bit in the weeds to understand it, but once you understand it, it's so obvious what they're trying to do here yeah. um, that 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 uh, I think that's going to be a big fight um, going forward. And it's also notable that a lot of people that are leading this fight participated in the insurrection. There's one guy, uh, Doug Mastriano, he's a state senator, he's the guy that hosted Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis uh, in mm-hmm. Harrisburg, I think in December, mm-hmm. when they were still trying to stop the steal. He went to Washington on January 6th. And I think chartered a number of buses to bring other people there mm. as well. I mean, so he's an insurrectionist. He yeah. wasn't inside the Capitol, um, but he's someone who laid the groundwork for the insurrection. And the fact that, you know, he's now trying to make it harder to vote in Pennsylvania just give you a really good indication of the type of people we're dealing with here. Uh, yeah, no kidding. And uh, while uh, the governor there, Tom Wolf, could you know block some of these measures, as you say, Ari Berman, uh, with vetoes, this one, I guess, as I understand it, it's a constitutional uh, uh, measure that would go straight onto the ballot. So the governor can't prevent that from happening. This is going to go on the ballot. Yeah, the governor can't prevent the gerrymandering of the courts. Now, it it 
only very narrowly made it out of committee. A few Republicans have already defected. Um, so it's not a foregone conclusion that it's Good. going to make the ballot. I mean, I think they, they clearly want to do it, but I think it's, it's already getting opposition. Judges from both sides of the spectrum are uniformly opposed to this. So, I mean, it's just, it's a really nuts situation where basically the legislature that has been found guilty of gerrymandering now wants to gerrymander the court. Um, <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't really think of any other state that does it this kind of way. Um, particularly shifting from a system in which basically everyone is elected statewide to then being from districts, which doesn't even make sense. Why do you need a judge from a district when they vote on legislation that's statewide? Right. But also the fact that the legislature is going to draw the districts, the judges are going to be elected from, and the legislature is going to hear legislation for it that was drafted by the legislature. It just seems like such a conflict of interest as well. Well, of course, that's why they're moving forward with it. Um, let's jump to real quick to Arizona, uh, which also turned blue for the first time in decades this year, where, like Georgia, they have a Republican state legislature and governor. What rights and freedoms is the party which pretends to be uh, in favor of rights and freedoms, hoping to take away from voters there? They in, in Arizona, they've tried to go even further than Georgia, amazingly. Um, they're, they're talking about trying to get rid of no-excuse absentee voting in a state where 80% of people vote by mail. They're talking about getting rid of this list where people are automatically sent absentee ballots or trying to purge hundreds of thousands of people from them. There's even one proposal to try to allow the legislature to just nullify the will of the voters and appoint their own presidential electors anytime they want, which is probably, of all the bills that we've seen this year, is probably the craziest one. Look, but hang, uh, on, hang on there, hang on there. I got Just to underscore that. So this bill would allow the legislature, after the election, to see that, oh, the, the, the people, the voters in Arizona voted for the Republican presidential candidate or the Democratic presidential candidate, and then they can look at that and say, yeah, we don't like that. We're going to use, we're going to select the other electors. That's actually what they are trying to do? Yeah, it, it basically would make the presidential election completely irrelevant in terms of what the voters actually voted for, because they could step in at any time between the end of the election and the certification of electors and say, we want to appoint our own electors. Um, in pretty much every single state, electors are based on the popular vote. Mm -hmm. This is why Donald Trump's bid to subvert the election didn't work, because it was actually illegal what they were trying to do in Arizona, Pennsylvania, Michigan, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but basically, this would codify Trump's attempt to overturn the will of the voters. And it's extremely mm -hmm. radical. Again, I don't think it's going anywhere, but I think they're just like throwing as much stuff at the wall to try to see what sticks yeah. at this point. Be careful before you decide what's not going anywhere, because we've seen these things that look like they're not going to go, and then they do, or they get picked up by other states, and these you know viruses sort of spread. Uh, the Brennan Center uh, cites, in addition to, we've talked about Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, they also cite New Hampshire, Montana, Alaska, Wisconsin, Mississippi, as all seeing uh, new additional restrictions moving through the state legislature, uh, how much of, of those and the ones we talked about would actually be prevented by the passage at the federal level of the Democrats' uh, massive election reform bill, H.R. 1, the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, if, if that can get passed? And is there any way that that can get passed without doing away with the Senate filibuster at this point? 
So I think that the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act would block pretty much all of these efforts, because the John Lewis Voting Rights Act would require states like Georgia with a history of discrimination to have to approve their voting changes with the federal government. Federal government's not going to approve things like getting rid of um, mail voting. It would also require changes to be approved in every state that target minority voters, things like new voter ID laws or uh, purging the voting rolls. In addition, the For the People Act would have things like nationwide early voting, nationwide automatic registration, independent redistricting. So if those things are, are required nationwide, then states aren't going to be able to just get rid of them, uh, at least for federal elections. And so I think that these two pieces of legislation would go in a very, very, very long way to stopping the kind of suppression um, that we're talking about. And I think it's very clear the only way to get to pass them is to get rid of the filibuster, because if only seven Republican senators are willing to convict Donald Trump for mm-hmm. inciting an insurrection that nearly killed them, mm-hmm. it's really hard to imagine 10 of them saying, signing on to the For the People after the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. So as of now, I only know of one Republican senator, Lisa Murkowski, that supports the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Mm-hmm. I don't know of a single Republican senator that uh, supports the For the People Act. Mitch McConnell evidently said he won't allow any Republicans to sponsor it because he knows it will spell the doom of himself and the Republican mm-hmm. Party and all their anti-democratic tactics. Um, so this is a big fight brewing because basically Joe Manchin and, and Kirsten Cinema are saying they want to preserve the filibuster. But right now we're, we're seeing an existential threat to democracy and also a very real threat to the power of the Democratic Party. And at some point they're going to have to choose, do they want to preserve this thing that allows a small minority of Republicans to block any kind of attempts to roll back uh, efforts to, 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 to stop the democratic process? Mm-hmm. Or do they want the Senate to have a response to this? And that's going to be a big debate that's going to play out in the next few weeks and the next few months. Uh, yesterday on this show, John Bonifaz of Free Speech for People suggested that uh, pressure on Senate leadership and on the White House itself uh, to, to push them to subsequently push Manchin and Cinema to do the right thing here, that that might work, and essentially, whether it works or not, it's sort of the only hope. Uh, do, do you agree, uh, or do you have any other tricks that you foresee as potentially successful uh, in getting this undemocratic filibuster killed once and for all? I think that's true. I mean, right now they only need 50 votes plus Harris to get the COVID bill passed. So mm-hmm. there's no real need to try to antagonize them right now because they can pass this through reconciliation. But once they do that, they can't do reconciliation again, um, under my understanding, for another year. So basically, they have to get 60 votes to be able to pass anything. And I think Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are going to realize that Republicans are not going to be willing to come to the table on this. And it's kind of amazing to me, you talk about Sinema, for example, we said there's 40 new restrictions on voting that have been introduced in Arizona. Arizona, yeah. You think that she would have a very vested interest in passing a new Voting Rights Act and passing democracy reforms to prevent these kind of things. They're going to hurt voters in her state, yep. but they're also going to threaten her ability and Mark Kelly's ability to get reelected. So there's both an idealistic case to be made here, but there's also just a pure power case here. This is not just kind of mealy mouthed good government reform, although it, it would do a lot of good. Um, it's also a way to keep the Republicans from entrenching these incredibly anti-democratic schemes that are going to make it very, very difficult for Democrats to keep the House and keep the Senate. 
2022 mm. and to get anything passed for Joe Biden beyond this COVID relief bill that we're talking about. Yeah, and uh, just to, uh, I think, correct uh, one uh, record, uh, I actually believe because the uh, Congress did not pass a reconciliation, did not pass a budget bill for uh, 2020, uh, in 2020 for 2021, that they're able to do reconciliation now, and that's what they're using the uh, COVID uh, bill uh, for. There is another budget uh, bill for next year that is supposed to be passed this year that they can again use reconciliation for, as I understand it. However, yeah, uh, it's got to be for budget-related stuff, and uh, I think it would be hard to make the case that uh, the HR1 election reform uh, would come under that. So, no, no, I haven't heard of any Democrat make an argument yeah. um, that you can do, because I, I asked Schumer's staff this a long time ago, uh-huh. that is there any way you can do H.R. 1 or John Lewis voting rights after reconciliation? And they said no. So I think, I think that's pretty cut yeah. and dry at yeah. this point, that they, 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 their only choice is to get rid of the filibuster, to pass this, or to make an exception to the filibuster, which is something that Jeff Merkley from Oregon has talked about, for things relating to democracy reform. Mm. So you're not getting rid of the filibuster entirely, but you're basically saying that an anti-democratic feature of our political system that allows 40-run Republican senators representing 21% of the country to block any kind of changes uh, should not be allowed to block fundamental changes to our democracy. That's basically what you're saying. And so that's another possible uh, exit ramp um, for, for cinema and for Manchin, but it's going to require the Democratic Party to really make this a really big issue. Because yeah. I think... The John Lewis Voting Rights Act, I think, resonates a little bit more with people because of John Lewis, and I think that the senators from Georgia made a, made a big point of passing it um, when they ran uh, in these runoffs. But people don't really understand what the For the People Act is, why it matters. So, I mean, they have to do a, a much better job of communicating the importance of this if they're going to try to get a critical mass of, of public opinion to put pressure on people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema that are pretty much just worried about their own political survival. I might suggest they combine them both, call them both the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, uh, <laughs> and, and go from there at this point. And it's not just, uh, you know, the, the, the pressure that Manchin and Cinema are going to be feeling. Hopefully it's the pressure that we, the people, bring on not just the two of them, but also on a Senate leadership, also on the White House, uh, it's going to be a hell of a fight in the days ahead, I suspect. Ari Berman, uh, senior reporter at Mother Jones. You can and should follow his work at MotherJones.com. And you should also follow him on the Twitters, uh, an indispensable Twitter follow, uh, frankly. He is Ari Berman. Look for his tweets with the sirens on them. You'll want to take notice. Hey, thanks, Ari. Great speaking with you, my friend. Hope to do it again soon. Thanks, Brad. I appreciate it. Thank you. You bet. Okay, we have got to get out. My (laughs) thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and uh, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Hey, while you're there, here's an idea. Please click on one of those donate buttons or just go straight to bradblog.com slash donate. Um, Unlike Rush Limbaugh, we rely on you to stay on your public airwaves bradblog.com slash donate drop me email if you like i am bradcast at bradblog.com and on the facebooks and the twitters i am the brad blog that is it until we meet again hopefully tomorrow i'm brad friedman good luck world